Welcome to the Aftershock podcast. We chat about cancer, the word you never want to hear. I think it's more just like a token throwaway line of like, I don't really know what to say here. I'm going to say so strong because if you're strong, but really the best advice would be, hey, however you're feeling, that's normal. The Aftershock podcast speaks to a variety of people that have experienced the ripple effect of a cancer diagnosis. Join us as we explore stories of lost loved ones and speak to those who have had lived experience with the disease. I'm Susie Neat, and this is the Aftershock Podcast. Hugh van Kallenberg is founder of The Resilience Project and co-host of The Imperfects Podcast. The Resilience Project delivers emotionally engaging programs to schools, sports clubs, and businesses, providing practical evidence-based mental health strategies to build resilience and happiness. Hugh joins me to discuss how you can look after yourself when the sun is shining, but also when trauma hits. Well, I'm going to start with a thank you. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago when we had the idea of this podcast, called you because you'd already started one and I was like, yeah. I think um, I want to do a podcast. It's a great way to talk about the different points of view of cancer without throwing a fundraiser because obviously yeah. there's a lot of fundraisers around. Um, but I was like, I'm definitely not going to be host though because I don't know how to host. And you just simply said to me, how do you know you're not a host? And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I don't know. I've never tried it. I don't know that I'm not a host. I could give it a go. And so then I gave it a go and I've, I've loved it. So thank you. If you hadn't said that to me, I absolutely would have spent about six months trying to find someone to host this. Well, I've listened to a few episodes. You're a very good host as well, like a very natural host. So yeah, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, good. I'm glad we're, we're practicing gratitude already. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> um, and it might be odd for some people to think like this is a cancer-related podcast um, and everyone knows typically what cancer looks like, but the thing I've learned most is the hidden side of cancer, which no one's really talking about. And it doesn't have a face. It doesn't have a consistent image. And that's the mental toll and the mental side effects of cancer. People know what chemo looks like, treatment, death even. Um, but no one, no one has that view of literally the aftershock of a cancer diagnosis and how it impacts so many different lives. Um, and that's how the aftershock was born. That's our name. That's what um, we try and spread awareness of. But I'd be keen to know what prompted you to start the Resilience Project? Well, I guess a kind of similar journey, really. It was inspired by my sister's battles with mental ill health. Although I, I say that, I didn't, I wasn't quite consciously aware of it at the time. Like I wasn't thinking, I guess we're a bit different that way, as in your purpose is very explicit from the word go. Mine sort of wasn't. I sort of found myself talking about mental health and found myself talking about um, ways we can cope and through challenging times. And it wasn't until a couple of years later when I've, people started asking why, like, what's your reason you're doing this, that I actually thought about it and went, oh, actually, it's because of my sister. But I didn't realise it at the time. It was kind of, I really, it's a strange thing, but I really enjoy public speaking and I love working with kids and I'm very interested in the topic of happiness. So I kind of started just doing these talks at schools and yeah, it wasn't until I was a couple of years in when I actually joined the dots looking backwards, which is not what you've done. You were very explicit from the start, but I guess the similarity with us is that it was born out of love for a family member who, you know, for my sister, um, she, she's really good now. We're very fortunate for that, but for a long time she wasn't. And I think the impact that has on you 
uh, well, it's life changing for it's it's life changing. It very much was for me. I just didn't realize it at the time. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I totally I get that as well. When Mum started her journey, I had no aspiration whatsoever to start a non for profit organization or a charity mm. at all. It was furthest thing from my mind. But I think I when I was, I was actually driving to Lawn a few months after she passed away, and it and it really hit me that there's a space here that no one's talking about a certain groups of cancer and that mental toll, but also like when something bad happens to you that um, uh, no one prepares you for it. Like life is just going along like this and you're just enjoying all the goodness. Um, but then something bad can happen. And I think you've, I know you've said it before that it is inevitable that something bad will happen in our mm. lives that yeah. you know, it could be, it's all relative as well. It could be small or it could be small in your eyes, but it's big in someone else's or it could be, you know, losing a loved one, which is, yeah. which is, which is really intense. Um, how did you, and you were kind of learning how to cope with that change once it happened. Um, yeah. How do you speak to people now and try and build resilience when the sun is shining in their lives? It's, it's a difficult one. I mean, I, it's a little bit easier now that COVID has happened or is happening because I think for like I've been doing this for nearly twelve years now, and before COVID, I'd talk about all this stuff to people, and you could see people in the audience who were who understood why practicing positive mental health strategies was really important, and you could see people who were just enjoying. You know, I, I, I and in part to answer your question, I just tell stories that I hope people find really engaging, so that even if they're not engaged on the topic of mental health, they're still into the story. Um, but you would see those people going, oh, I enjoyed that story, but it didn't really have an impact. As soon as COVID hit, I'm telling my stories and people are like taking notes and going, can you say, so, so slow down, say that bit again. What was the bit you said about <laughs> like people, everyone, we had this thing where every single, like it's extraordinary. Like hopefully I have nothing like it ever again, but every single person in the world was negatively affected by COVID in some way, shape or form. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, early on, I think it was, some people weren't, some people, the novelty was quite not exciting, but it's what they needed was a bit of a reset. But after, you know, a year, two years, it starts to wear everyone down. It becomes negative for everyone. I think everyone know, everyone in the world now has a point of reference for when something goes wrong, when something unexpected happens and turns your life upside down. We've all got that now. Yeah. Whilst the sun is shining for many people, I think we all have a reference point for what, maybe not rock bottom, but what struggle can look like. But I, I guess to answer your question, but before COVID, it was I would use emotionally engaging stories that even if the person wasn't affected by mental health in their family, the story still got them. They either it was either a funny story or a really moving story. And we we love human beings love stories. Like we 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 I mean, it's all I do in my talk is tell stories because when I'm actually I've jokingly talked about taking notes before, but people take notes when I'm giving them strategies, people take notes when I'm giving them the science, people take notes when I'm like really off the evidence or the practical stuff. But the second I start telling a story, people don't take notes. Mm. And the reason they don't take notes from a story is because they don't need to, because they will remember. They just, it's, we remember stories. So um, I, I, I share stories and that's the way that it's the best way to reach people. Have you found that whether you've seen it, whether you've practiced it, there's things you've tried and failed or haven't worked? I oh, totally. Yeah. There's, I mean, Everyone's different. Everyone has things that are going to work for them. Um, we had uh, Chrissy Swan on our podcast the other day and she was talking about walking, how powerful walking has been for her. She just goes for long walks. I 
when I was injured, I could only walk, I couldn't run, and it drove me insane. I was going for walks, and I, it made me more anxious that I couldn't run. So different things work for different people. I, I would say as a general rule, the one thing, and it's kind of why I love your charity event that you do once a year, the one thing that I would say works on pretty much everyone, a few exceptions, is, is movement or exercise. So some people have real issues with it and just hate exercise, but when they do it, it does it helps them. It makes them to feel better. Um, we all cope better when we have. I think exercise in the mornings. I mean, not all of us can do that as well with kids. I certainly can't really do it at the moment. But I know when I can exercise in the morning, it just shapes the rest of my day. So that you do something difficult like exercise, it kind of you just have this mentality of uh, you're optimistic. You feel I can get through anything, um, and and you just cope better. Even when like small things go wrong, like if you, that's an example. The other day I'd been for a run, got home, and then Elsie, our three-year-old, I poured her a glass of milk and she just I gave it to her and she just like, for absolutely no reason whatsoever, she just dropped it in front of me, like deliberately just dropped it on the ground and then had a tantrum. And I was like, what? But I co- if I hadn't been for a run that morning, I wouldn't have coped, but I, I did. Okay, this, this is not the question that you asked, Susie. But, That's fine. Um, but there is, but there are, um, I think my point is I think for everyone, different things. Like I talk about practicing gratitude all the time, but there are some people who find that, a stressful thing to do because mm. they find it really hard to think of things or it, they already naturally their default setting is to be very grateful so the recording and stuff doesn't really have an impact because they just walk around the world, world being grateful anyway so certain things work for certain people and that's why i try very hard to present a whole range of options for people i think it's such a good point about exercise um just before mum passed away, I started, I joined this gym and it was classes only. So you get there, you're told what to do and they get the most out of you as opposed to figuring out what gets mm. you going. And it was the best thing for me. And I've told them this since that after she passed away, I, I kept going and it was the one hour of my day where I thought about nothing else. Okay. And it was just this incredible therapy that I didn't know that's what it was at the time, but it was just the one hour of day. I didn't have my phone on me. I didn't have any other distraction. Our trainer was slightly terrifying. So I listened, like I really listened. Um, his name's Ben. Um, and he just, I actually have thanked him so many times because I'm like, you absolutely saved me. For, and you made sure okay. that class got me out of bed every morning. And I've been going ever since. Like I just, and I notice if I don't go and sometimes I'm just purely too tired or cooked to get up early. Um, my day is so different. It is. What, what's the, what was the exact class? What were you doing in the class? The range, my favorite is it's a sweat class. So like a high intensity 45 to 60 minute class where it's just nonstop basically the whole time. Um, yeah. And I, it's, I just, I loved it and I still do. And then there's strength classes as well. They do Pilates and spin classes back then. Um, and it's, it's honestly saved me. It was incredible. Yeah, I've heard amazing stuff. Thanks for sharing that. I've heard so many stories of people who have been through severe trauma. And I think it's because of what I'm interested in running, but it's not necessarily just running. But there's a whole book I read, I forgot what it's called, but it was on people who have survived trauma through running. Like I just ran and ran and ran and, and that was their escape from it. I mean, there's a lot of science behind it, but I, I do think that it's a very healthy addiction for like, you know, that it can help you escape things. Absolutely. And if I had something on the night before, I'd stop my, not that I would stop myself, but I was, I prioritized that early morning get up and going to the gym. And that was more important to me than whatever I was doing the night before. And I think for yeah. some people that can be hard to understand as well, but I'm like, I need this to get through the day. 
Yeah, well, it sets everything in motion. Um, as far as I find after exercise, I'm so my instinct is to eat much in much more healthy diet. Like I'm much more willing, I'm much more likely to eat well. And then when you exercise in the morning, you exercise during the day, you're more tired at night. So you, you, you sort of like set the alarm clock to, to you just get tired at a healthier time, like earlier on, and you go to bed a bit earlier. And if you exercise the next morning, you want to, you want to get a good night's sleep so you can exercise properly. So it, it sets up this chain of events that lead you to just being a much healthier version of yourself. And when you're a much healthier version, you are very naturally, you're going to cope better. You're going to cope yeah. better with challenging times. So, um, and the other thing that that I mean, the best research. I've ever seen on the topic of resilience. And I think it's really, this is really powerful for anyone who's experienced trauma, any form of trauma, I think especially losing a loved one. But the best research ever done on this topic was by a lady called Barbara Fredrickson, who's a professor in um, US, who in 2001 was determined to work out what is the most common personality characteristic amongst resilient people. And she, I don't know how, I don't know what her sample size was, but she had a lot of people and she'd done these personality profiles on them. So she had in-depth personality profiles on, I'm going to say hundreds of people. I don't know what the exact number was. And soon after she'd done that, she was then trying to work out, like, like how can I test these people? What's the test I can put them through to find out how resilient they are? And that's a very difficult thing to, to get through ethics. Like, how are you going to challenge someone emotionally? To, and she was struggling to, 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 to think of an activity or an event that would cause them some kind of trauma or challenge. And while she was going through all that, 9-11 happened, the tragedy of 9-11, and she thought, well, this is just terrible. You know, I, I can't, I need to abandon this research right now. This is just not a good time to be doing research. It's probably going through such an outlier. Um, and two days later, she was on a train, and she was sitting opposite a couple who were crying, and they were consoling themselves, which she said wasn't uncommon in New York two days after the um, 9-11. But she said they were clearly a couple who had lost a loved one um, and she was sitting opposite them. It was quite awkward because of that, but she looked away for most of the time. But at one point she turned back and she saw that they were laughing. They were still really upset. They were holding each other, but they were laughing about something. And she paused on that and reflected and thought, you know what? This is the time. Like this is the time right now to do this research. This is the event I've been looking for. Like this is the tra traumatic event that everyone's going through. So she went back to all the participants and she then followed them for the next few years and took data on them, um, and what she found was the most common characteristic amongst the people who bounced back quickest from the trauma of 9-11, the most common personality, uh, personality con um, uh, characteristic was positivity or positive emotion, the people experienced the most positive emotion. Not to say they buried their head in the sand and pretended it wasn't happening. They didn't do that at all. But these people who coped, they still found reasons to smile. They still found reasons to um, to laugh and they still involve themselves in activities that they knew would bring them joy. Like the example she gives in her book, um, which is called Positivity, was a couple who, oh, maybe it's the wrong book, I, I think it was Positivity. Anyway, the example she gives was a couple who decided uh, that they're in a book club together and the person reached out to them and said, oh, it's okay, look, we'll cancel book club this week. Obviously, you don't want to. And they said, no, you're right, we don't want to do it, but we have to. This is the stuff we have to keep doing. We have to do the stuff that we still love doing. And so I think for anyone listening who is dealing with trauma, the, like the evidence and the science says seeking out things that will bring you joy, even though it's probably the last thing you feel like doing, um, that's what breeds resilience. That's what brings resilience. And that's why 
all we talk about at the Resilience Project, gratitude, empathy, mindfulness, they're, they're ways that you can cultivate positive emotion. If you practice gratitude, if you lie in bed at night and you write down three things that went well for you during the day, it'll evoke the emotion of gratitude, which is incredibly positive emotion. Um, so despite what you're going through and the troubles that you're going through, it might be the last thing you feel like doing, but positive emotion is what leads to resilience. Couldn't agree more. We um, Before lockdown, we got a puppy and he's a Kelpie. Yeah. And so yeah. that forced us, once we went into lockdown, to get out of the house every morning because he yeah. he was very ready and wearing to go. Um, and that was became our routine for almost three yeah. years. And a part of that living in lockdown um, was my husband and I, Mike, we did that together. And that was outside, yeah. away from our phones, yeah. with our dog, having the time of his life. And also you can just learn so much from a dog who literally getting outside and going for a walk or a run is the happiest thing in the world. Like yeah. it was incredible. Um, anyway, that was three years. He's three now. Over the summer break, he hurt his foot um, and we had to rest him, which stopped our morning routine. And I didn't realize it at the time, but after eight, nine days, I was like, I'm a bit down. And so was my husband. The dog definitely was, Keith. But it's because yeah, we weren't. Yeah. We've, um, we didn't go outside every morning. We didn't have that time with him seeing him happy. And it really, I couldn't believe how much it affected me. And that was just yeah. the simplest routine part of our day not being outside, and this is summer. This is just over the summer break now, um, and it completely, completely affected both of us. That's a really good example. I mean, there's so much happening there as well. I mean, that's movement. It's being in nature, um, but it's also that's what brings you positive emotion, and that's what helps you cope. And um, your podcast is on a break at the moment, but um, I saved up a bunch of episodes last year, and was that became my like midday afternoon walk, like during work. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. And now I've got none to listen to at the moment because I'm so caught up. When you mentioned Chrissy Swan before, I'm like, awesome. I look forward. I'm sure there's a bunch of episodes being recorded right now. But it's the same thing. Like I'd, you think you get stressed at work and then you listen to a podcast like yours where there's real-life situations and um, you it, it's just that escape. And you're like, mm-hmm. great, this is the little um, perspective check that I needed and I can actually go back yeah. to my desk and do my job better because I've lifted my head up and I've I've looked around and there's other bigger things in the world going on and I and I miss it. I miss my I still go for walks, but I miss I miss you three in my ear talking. <laughs> so I, I'm well, excited. Got, um, <laughs> I just came from a cafe in Collingwood that we go to a lot, um, and there's a girl called Kate who serves us there because we have a lot of our production meetings there, and she's always very polite and but we'll just take her order. And then she said um, today, I said oh, I just. I just have to let you know, like, I didn't know if I should say this or not, but I really love the podcast. And she goes, it is so exciting because you guys, your whole team comes in here for lunch every day and I get to serve you and I feel like I'm part of the podcast team. So I'm bringing you <laughs> and she, yeah, but she said similar thing to you. She said, oh, I just um, so I spend so much time like walking and listening that it's, um, yeah, a very similar story to you, but that's very nice. Thank you. That's lovely to know that you never know who's listening or what impact it has. So it's nice to, it's always nice to hear that people are, are listening. Oh, it's having, having a huge impact. We're talking about before about positivity and something I found that I actually did not like when mum passed away was when people would be overly positive or tell you to stay strong or, oh, yeah. or look for those positives. Do you find there's a difficult balance on that level of positivity and being resilient? Yeah, well, there's two things there. So the first thing is the way people respond to you when you're when you're struggling and when you're 
you're not coping or, or something really bad's happened to you, the, the, the best thing to do, and it's a really hard thing to do, to know what to say. And everyone says it with the best, whatever they say, they're saying, because I love you and I want the best for you. So, um, and often it can come out, you know, it may not come out right because, you know, they're so overwhelmed with what on earth you say in a situation. But um, the, the best thing you can do is just to validate whatever the person's feeling and just that's it. It's as simple as that. That's all you need to do is um, be with them and be with them and listen to them. And if they're not saying much, just validating why they feel I totally, I, I you know, you can either you have been through that same thing and you can say, I know how you feel. I, I know what you're feeling. That's all you need to say. And if you haven't, it's, um, I can't imagine what you're going through, but whatever you're feeling, it's, that's, that's to be expected and it's normal. And I, I, of course you feel like that, you know, that kind of thing, just, that's all you need. I, I think the second you start giving advice, even if it's well-meaning, it's kind of, it's not unsolicited advice at a time like that. It's just kind of, it's not, not going to help any, anyone. Um, but yeah, you don't want to fake, you don't want to fake the positivity. You don't want to, um, you don't want, you want to be very genuine, very authentic with how you're feeling. I, I think with experiencing positive emotion, I, I think the first thing is, is just to in, to put yourself in the picture of positive emotion, if that makes sense, like put yourself in in range of, of of experiencing positive emotion. So do things that you ordinarily would love doing, and be around people that you usually love being around. And it may not come straight away, but um, if you, I don't know, I'm trying to give an example. If you, I drove past Fitzroy Paul on the way here and saw a squad waiting to train together. If you, if you love swimming training. Um, have a you know have a few days off because you need you're not in a space to be around other people. But the second you feel like yeah, I can maybe do it, I don't totally feel like it. You just do it because that's what brings you positive emotion usually. You just in your line of work, like you, we've sat together, you've listened to my story, you would have listened to hundreds, probably thousands, with all your talks. How do you not take on too much? Oh, what a good question! Uh, because you'll get this a lot, like with what you do with people mm. sharing their story, which is really beautiful that they yeah. I do want to share that story with you, but it's um, I don't. I haven't ever worked out. To be honest, I've never really worked out the best response. To that sometimes I feel like I go through stages where I just don't really listen. Like as in, I listen. I absolutely listen. That's not true. I I do listen, but I make a deliberate. If I don't know the person at all, I got no connection to them. If it's a complete stranger. I kind of make a decision to keep it. Yeah, to to hear it and to say to validate the way they're feeling, but then I, I kind of try and forget about it. It sounds so cold, but you well, cannot. You, you just reminded me a lot of the doctors and the surgeons that we work with that they they have to do that as well. They have to almost isolate themselves from the personal connection. Otherwise, you you wouldn't be able to do your line of work. Yeah, that's gosh, I can't even begin to imagine that. I mean, that's where you you're involved in the actual, like you're physically involved in the person's life as opposed to me just hearing the story you know a lot of people will say oh, i just want to let you know that you know my sister this happened to her you know and i, and I feel instant sadness for them but then i have to go i was different with you and me because we had a connection and we know each other so i'd felt every bit of that and still think about it a lot but i for people i don't know it's kind of I just i'm very sorry and and validate them and then i kind of just have to shut it out i guess you just wouldn't be able to function if you didn't have that no. level of, um, and then you yeah. wouldn't be able to do the work you're doing and growing it as well. Yeah. I mean, there's still some that get through. Like I still hear some stories that just cut through and, and I can't, I, I can't unhear them, but, um, 
for the most part, I'm I'm reasonably good at responding well in the moment, but then getting the car and going, and it never happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never made that problem. Yeah, oh, you'd have to. With everything going on, obviously the podcast, the Resilience Project just has been so amazing for so many years now. Family, so much going on, doing a tour of the Imperfects as well. What do you do to stay grounded? Well, I think it's the people that I choose to spend my time with are very good at keeping me grounded. So Penny, my wife, is um, she gets a buzz from, you know, seeing some of my stuff out there or, you know, my Amazon special comes out in a week's time and the trailer's been ready for the last couple of months, but I just hadn't shown her. I don't know why. And she saw it on social media yesterday for the first time and she got such a huge buzz out of it. But Penny keeps me very grounded. And I don't even know how to articulate how, but she's not like a fan. She's not a fan, if that kind of yeah. makes sense. She's not like just she treats me exactly the same way before and all this happened, I guess. There's no... Our relationship hasn't changed in the slightest in that regard, um, and she's she's just so down to earth herself that that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty. And then a lot of my friends are you know, I'd say most of my mates don't listen to the podcast. Most of my mates have not seen me speak ever. Um, sometimes I wonder why they don't come and listen. To, but they but that's and that keeps me very grounded as well. That they're they're not they're like yeah that's. I had dinner with a group of mates from school the other day, and like no one said has a podcast and I listen to it. Nothing. It was none of that. It was just normal chat. And that that's, I think that's a really healthy thing. And I, I really appreciate, I, I, I really enjoy that. So I think, I think the people that you spend your time with keep you grounded because it can be really intoxicating. Like I can have a day where we can interview these unbelievable people for the podcast and then hear that we've, you know, sold out our show in Melbourne and then find out that, someone incredible wants to come on the podcast and then all this great stuff can happen. You can be like, he's such a high from it. And so to get home and the Penny's had a really long day with the three kids or she's got a tough day of writing or whatever it is. And it's just, I don't know, you can't maintain that level of excitement. And so to, to be around people who, who love you, but are not necessarily fans, it's, it's, um, that's really healthy, I think. I think it's a good point you mentioned. Um, and your kids must they like they your dad. You're not Hugh from the Resilience Project or Hugh from the Imperfects. You just you just dad. Like they don't know who you're interviewing or what that means either. Um, I was listening yeah. to. I remember. I think it was Brendan Favola. He made this great point, surprisingly or not surprisingly, depending on your view. Where um, he, I think when he was young, he play footy, they'd lose, he'd go to the change rooms and he'd be devastated. And then he'd see these older players with kids and they were smiling and laughing and he's like, we just lost. Like, how could you possibly be happy right now? And then he had kids and he would see them after a game and then make him smile and happy and he's like, I get it now. Like, I actually don't give a shit that we lost. I've got my kids. And I I thought that was a really lovely point. (laughs) Um, I, on that, I... I was feeling that last year I did the opera house. I played the opera house and I was so proud of that. And and I tried to explain to Benji and Elsie that when I got back, I said, oh, I just did a, I did a show and it was at the opera house. And I, they went, okay. And just kept playing. I said, Oh, I'll show you a picture. And I Google imaged opera house. Um, and I showed them a picture, but like the whole image had come up for opera house. And there was another building in India that like some incredible looking building in India. And like, I pointed at the opera house and Benji goes, did you do that one? And I went, 
Oh no, that's like an injury. He goes, oh okay. Like he like really disappointed. He's like not the best building in this picture. Yeah. And so yeah. I was like, yeah, there's no. That's another very grounding thing. Like kids. I think Missy Higgins on our podcast said that like she'll play music in front of her son, and he's like, stop, stop singing. Yeah. Just stop. Yeah. I'm sick of you singing all the time. So there's no. Yeah, they're also not fans, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that they're ignorance almost is it's refreshing yeah. and you just yeah, totally. you think totally. about that and you're like I think about that a lot with my childhood I had an amazing childhood like it was the absolute best and I'm like what a simpler simpler time and how lucky to have experienced that yeah totally when you've got it all so much going on and tight schedules and traveling a lot what do you do to slow down uh running fast trying to run fast is what I do to slow down if that makes sense like I I about in uh, when I was 30, so I'm 42 now. So about four years ago, I stopped playing cricket and found this, there's this huge hole in my life where I had nothing that I was sort of, and I loved athletics. I loved sprinting at school so much, but stopped as soon as school finished. Cause I was like, well, I don't, who does athletics after school? I didn't know where to start and just have discovered this absolute love of, I, I won't say running. Cause I think that people don't, people think, oh, you go for a long run. It's like sprint training. It's like trying to run as fast as you can. So my session, it's like when I talk to people who most people are middle, most people who run a middle distance runners or long distance runners, and they'll run for like 15 cars. My, my hairdresser yesterday was telling me how he went for a 20k run that morning before he cut my hair because he's a long distance, middle distance run marathon runner. And my session yesterday was a total of 900, like the whole session went for 900 meters. It was 120 seconds on my garment, it said 120 seconds of running. That was it. Like it was three 300 meter sprints flat out with a 15 minute rest in between. <laughs> so you have got to be fully recovered to do it properly. And I'm still, I still feel a bit unwell today from it. It was so hard, but it's like, it's, it's like for me, it's, it's like, I'm, I'm going a bit into the weeds here and you don't need to hear about what my sessions are, but like, yeah, it's just the, the um, high intensity stuff to do it properly. You need to be 100% 100% present. I find when I do long runs, my mind wanders for a bit. Don't get me wrong, I love going for long runs and, and I don't love it, but I understand why people love it. Um, but my, my mind's a bit all over the place, but in, to do that properly, you have to completely zone out from everything and just focus on running and the feeling of getting older, but getting, and I've sort of noticed in the last couple of years, I'm just really starting to, to I look a lot older. Like I've never really thought that I'd look older, but all of a sudden I'm like, geez, it's really starting to catch up with me. But doing something physical that you feel like you're getting better at at my age is a really nice feeling. So that helps me to, to um, I mean, every time, whenever we travel to a different city to do these shows, we get, I'll get an email saying, which hotels do you want to stay in, which, in whichever cities. And I just say, I just look up, just, I just say within five Ks of an track. It just needs to be within an track. Um, because I just, I'll, I don't, it's really weird. I actually, to take the pressure off my shows, especially last year's because we, we played some pretty big venues. I don't, I tell myself I'm going to Adelaide, for example, to train. So I, I get there. Everything's about training in, in the middle of the night, do my training session, finish and go, oh, I've got to do a show as well. Like I actually tell myself I'm there for training because it slows me down so much. It just makes me feel so calm. And relax that I can finish that. And then I, I know deep down that's not why I'm there, but I kind of try and just trick myself into, you know, I'll eat well, I'll drink lots of water, I'll plan my session. It's two hours at the track to do the session properly and then finish and then go, okay, now I'll do my show. 
So the whole tour is based around the where I stay is based around like it's like slowing down is that I'm getting back to your question. Slowing down is so important to me that I base my whole tour around where's the closest that track and how long can I spend there? Will it be open? Who else is going to be there? All that kind of stuff. It's funny what you said. You did us at school and then you stopped because school stopped as well. And yeah, yeah. like we went to a school that um, had compulsory sports. So we were always both always playing yeah. it. Um, I only took, I took up tennis two years ago. Um, never played. Oh, wow. I've held a racket really? like four times in my life. But my Mike, my husband, he's played his whole life. And I think it was in one of the breaks of lockdown or something like that. He was just like, do you want to go have a hit? And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't think I'm any good. Uh, and you're very good. And he's like, just let's just give it a go. And um, I loved it. And I've learned really? a new sport at the age of 30. Wow. And I- How good is that? Yeah, it's, it's so good. And you just think if I had this like mental awareness when I was learning to yeah. play sport at like eight years old, I reckon I, you know- my basketball career could have been really different. <laughs> oh, totally. I, I, yeah, some people say they have no regrets in life. I find that amazing. I, I really regret not exploring athletics at a younger age and just listening to, listening to my gut as far as like, it just made me feel so happy. But I chose a sport that I was maybe better at, but made me feel pretty stressed and pretty anxious just because that's what everyone was doing. Everyone was playing cricket. So I was like, oh, I'll do that. But running brought me so much joy. But I didn't, it's funny, you just, you get influenced by a lot of the wrong things when you're younger. It's nice when you get older, things like this. You know, you go, I'm, I'm going to try a new sport at age 30. I'm going to start tennis. And, like, it's almost, it's being vulnerable, really. Like, it's an emotional risk without any guarantee of an outcome. And it's led yeah. you to this wonderful thing that you love doing now. Yeah, and we go for a hit all the time. Now, I've got a coach because I was like, well, I want to get better. Oh. Now I get all of my competitive side comes out and I'm like, I want to um, – I'm just picking up the racket. Like, I've got no idea how to hold it. I've got no idea where my feet are meant to go, anything like that. And he's awesome. He, I get so angry, though. He's like, you know, you're not going on tour next year. Like, calm down. <laughs> like, well, I could just, um, yeah, no, it's 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 just another outlet. And, again, it's that time away from your phone where yeah. you can be completely present. My dad does it. He um, He's always been a good artist, but he's got into painting in retirement. And he um, he's very, very talented. And he'll, he's got like an art studio in his garage and he's like, I'll be down there four hours and I've got no idea um, where that time has gone. Yeah, you spoke about a, like the state of flow with, um, is it Johan yeah. Hari? Yeah, no, that's with, um, uh, oh, no, Johan Hari does talk about it. You're right. Yes, that's one of his things. Or oh, the focus. Yeah. Yeah, and I, that's when Dad can do it with that four hours of painting, I'm like, that's just so rare these days to be able to, with all the distractions around you, to just get lost in something for four hours. Like you almost become enviable of it. Yeah, well, that's that's flow. And it's, I've, a psychologist called Mihai, Chiksin Mihai, says that it's the deepest form of meditation there is when you involve yourself in an activity that you love so much that time becomes, you have no concept of time. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, I've, I've heard some incredible stories of people who have got their way through physical illness and mm. illness just by making time for flow. The activity that you love so much that when you're in it, time becomes irrelevant. And you and if someone stops you during it and says, what are you thinking about? You would say, I'm actually not thinking right now. This is just kind of just happening. That's, that's what flow is. It's kind of leading into probably one of my last questions. We've spoken about like building that mindset and what you can do when the sun is shining is in life just because the bad is inevitable as hard as that is yeah. to hear and there's ways that you can have that 
being not such a confrontive confronting conversation as well mm-hmm. a friend of mine did it her mum was actually a palliative care nurse got cancer very sadly and she um knew what was going to happen so she had a champagne night with her three daughter two daughters and they spoke about what was next over champagne like that sounds so mm-hmm. morbid for some but it's also really realistic and a conversation that you've you've got to have what do you do when you or what would you recommend almost when you've come across or um, people who are listening who the sun is shining, the sun, the sun is no longer shining and they're in that bad moment um, of their life and how do they get through it or how is a way that they can get through it? Oh, gosh, it's such a big question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to understand is that like it's, there's just, it is life, like life is full of ups and downs and it's, I mean, I'm I'm worried that people listening to this have probably been through something a lot more traumatic than I've ever been through. So I'm talking my my bearing on this, like my reference point is my sister being in hospital with her mental illness. My reference point is you know relationship breakdowns. It's um, you know things like that. I haven't lost a loved one to count. I mean, I mean, I haven't lost a someone to cancer before that. You know, my my. My grandparents passed away from um, one of them from cancer, but he was in his, you know, 80s. So it wasn't, yeah. So I'm just treading very carefully this one. Um, I, I think understand, first of all, understand this is part of life. And then you then have the opportunity to try and cultivate positivity where possible. And there's a variety of ways. We've spoken about them already today, but practicing gratitude when you're ready is paying attention to the good stuff because you are still surrounded by good stuff. It's still everywhere, but we can become blind to it when we're going through, when we're in the depths, when we hit rock bottom. Um, I think rock, the word rock bottom is also important because I, I think the rock bottom also, word rock bottom also has a connotation of like, there's only one way from here. Um, and it might take a while, it might be a long time at rock bottom, but it's just about clawing your way out at the pace you're ready to do. Um I think when something goes wrong, we become very, very insular. We become very focused on ourselves and our own struggles. And I think the second thing we talk about the Resilience Project is empathy, which is where you just try and feel what other people are feeling as well at that time and look around for other people who maybe are struggling and kind of bang them for, for them as well. It's, really good. it's a really healthy thing for you to do. It's good for your mental health to, to still look out for other people. Um, and we talk about mindfulness, which is just sort of being wherever you are, which I think is really... It's a really challenging one for someone who is going through what they're going through. But I think that, for me, that suggests you don't deny what's happening to you. You don't sort of try and pretend that you're okay with it. I think you've got to feel everything you're feeling and and share, really share what you're going through with someone that you really trust. I think, um, I think the more that you talk about what you're going through, the way it makes you feel, the way it's making you behave and act, I think that's really healthy behaviour as well. All those things are healthy things to do. They don't mean that you're going to wake up the next day and feel better, um, but they certainly they certainly set you on the right path. That's for sure. I couldn't. You just said something that really resonated. That that feel what you're feeling. Um, again, once mum passed away, my one of my close friends messaged me, whose mum passed away ten weeks before mine, and she said, oh. "A lot of people are going to tell you to stay strong, but you know you you're allowed to feel what you're feeling." And that yeah. just landed with me. And I was like, yeah, it is. No one's prepared me how to handle No one's told me 
that this would yeah. happen or told me how to prepare myself. Uh, if I need to cry, if I need to lose it, I, I actually can do that. And I've, I've said those words to people and you've got to tread carefully, but I've said it to people who have experienced something, who lost since then. Yeah. And they're like, of the 100 messages I've got in the last 48 hours, that has landed the most. Like it is, it's you don't need to give permission to people, but hearing those words can really just help you understand that it's okay to feel like the way you're feeling. Yeah, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I, I, you just say, I, I can imagine that's what you hear is like stay strong a lot of the time, but I feel like when trauma happens, you actually feel the opposite. You feel really weak, like you feel very weak and unable to cope with anything. So it's um, it's well-meaning advice, but like how? <laughs> like how? Like oh, how okay, I'd that? like to be strong, but if you've got any advice on how I can be strong right now, because I actually feel the opposite, and I think I think it's more just like a token throwaway line of like I don't really know what to say here. I'm going to say so strong because if you're strong, but really, the best advice would be. Um, Hey, however you're feeling, that's normal and thinking of you, whatever. I mean, I mean, don't say whatever at the end. That sounds quite good, but yeah, all along those lines. Thank you so much, Hugh. No, I loved it. I, I really um very moved by your story, but also your ability to articulate it. And then what you've done with it as well is just like, it's, it's inspiring. I mean, if you want to look at a good example of coping during a challenging time, you're a picture of resilience yourself. So I think that's... um. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this chat and, and um, what you're doing is amazing. Thank you so much to our friend Hugh for joining us on the Aftershock podcast. We bloody love the work you do and can't wait to listen to the next season of The Imperfects. Until next time, I'm Susie Nee, and this has been The Aftershock Podcast.